Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. So people don't mind going back to the office, but in Asia, the people who want to go to the office the least are the people who are working in Northeast Asia. So in China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, more of a tough environment to work in, more of a bullying culture, the strict 996 in China, which I know is going away, but people are still expected to work a lot. They don't have that type of a great work-life balance. They don't want to go back in. There's dozens of different types of dependencies you would need to look at. We need to start this process because this isn't going to go away. We're going to keep transitioning to it. So we might as well put in a better plan to make sure that our return to work and hybrid models are successful. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and we are in the post-pandemic world. Are we going remote, hybrid, or distributed in where and how we work? What does the future of work look like for us? With me today, in the spirit of David Letterman, my guest today needs no introduction. Charles Reed Anderson, now Chief Strategy Officer at Inc. Charles, welcome back to the show. Bernard, it's great to be here. It's nice to be back in your podcast again. It's been a little while. And thank you for having me on for that two episodes. I hope I didn't bore all of your audience off with a lot of different thoughts on different things from digital transformation drones to China. The China topic was fantastic. Trust me, I got a lot of feedback on that one. Okay, so I, instead of focusing on me today, it's all on you. So I want to ask, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Been a little bit of change, I guess you could say. Last time we talked on your podcast, I had my own company. I was an advisor for McKinsey. Still did some of my other side projects as well. Since then, I've actually gone back and joined a company called 8 Inc., which is an experienced design firm, which is quite a big change. Because if you think about it, I've been doing emerging tech. What am I doing with a bunch of creatives and architects? But it's been quite an interesting journey, I guess. I'll be able to tell you a little bit more about it in a bit. Mm. So what led you to join 8 Inc.? I know it's Tim Kobe, right? Who, yes. Yeah. So well, funny enough, you were one of the instigators of me actually deciding to go and work for somebody again. And you might remember this when you were interviewing me on my podcast last year, you asked me a question. You said, why are you so cynical about technology? And I said, I'm not cynical about technology. I'm pragmatic. It's just that I've seen us make the same mistakes again and again over the years, whether it was 3G, 4G, 5G, Smart cities, prop tech, LP WAN, you name it. We always overhype, we oversimplify, and we underdeliver. And then I said, you know what's going to go wrong with 6G? We're going to overhype, oversimplify, and underdeliver. And when I listened to it back, it was like a big smack in the face for me, where I was like, oh my God, I know exactly what I'm going to be saying in five or 10 years from now. And I realized that I needed to go somewhere else where I could make some more impact. So what I did is I reached out to a few people who I'm pretty close with. Actually, you know all of them as well. One was Jackie, Steve Mahush, and this guy named Tim Kobe, who I've become friends with. 
And Tim's famous because he's the guy who actually created the Apple Store concept for Steve Jobs. And he's got this firm that's been around now for 30 plus years. And they do some really cool things. And I told them, I'm like, I need to find something. You know, I'm happy to get out of what I'm doing. I need to do something where I can drive more impact and look at things in a different way. And he said, why don't you join us? And at first I was like, what are you kidding me? I'm like, it's an experienced design firm. You've got like creatives, architects, brand strategists in there. I'm like, what am I going to do? He's like, we'll figure it out. And at first I'm like, this is crazy. But then I realized I'm like, it's actually crazy enough to work because see with technology right now, we we have the technology to do whatever we want. We don't have a technology problem. We have a people problem because we don't know how to leverage the technology. So I've been looking a lot at that over the past, what is it now, almost 10 months. Mm. So can you talk about your role and coverage with Inc. now? You're the chief strategy officer, right? Yes, yes. So what I'm doing, if you look at a traditional design firm, they have methodologies that they'll apply to create a solution for a client. So that could be the Apple stores for Steve Jobs. And we've done Nissan Crossing um, up in Ginza. We've done the Lincoln car dealerships that have no salespeople. But what I'm actually doing is taking those methodologies and looking more at the market drivers. So what are the trends in the market where people have problems or challenges? And how can we apply these same methodologies to it? So part of that's looking at things like the future of work or sustainability. Increasingly now I'm being asked to look at the metaverse, which I partially like looking at and partially am scared to death of, but it's a lot of other things as well. I'm looking back into the technology industry about how you can leverage these human outcomes approaches to better drive the adoption of emerging technology. Which comes to the main subject of the day, which is about the future of work. I've seen the video because at least a few times because before to prepare for this interview. <laughs> and it's a buzzword as well. But I think there's some pretty interesting ideas that I think you talk about in the video. But I, I want to first start off by getting a proper definition. Well, how do you define what the future of work means for the layman out there? So what I would say is people are talking about things like this is the new normal, the next normal. I think everyone would agree, we, this is not normal. The environment we're in right now is abnormal and we're in a transition phase. But we look at the future, it's how different things can impact work going forward. Part of that could be the shift from working more in the office to being more in a hybrid approach. Part of it's leveraging technology to change the way that we work as people or the way that our buildings operate. And it's about how certain things will impact businesses in the future. And a lot of those themes will be around things like sustainability. But like I said, you know, this we are not in the future of work. It's, the future means it is still in the future. We are in a very abnormal transitional phase right now, is the way I described it. Mm. And is it like a buzzword to you? Oh, it is. It's totally. I mean, funny thing is, I said I wanted to get away from saying that we overhype, oversimplify, and underdeliver. Guess what? That is exactly what we have done with the future or the return to the office right now. And I was doing an event last week and I told the majority of the large commercial real estate firms, um, MNCs and Singaporean based ones in the room, your return to work strategies are going to fail. And I'll explain to you why. <laughs> <laughs> I guess from the start of the pandemic to the post pandemic era now, what has changed for organizations adopting hybrid and remote work? Well, like someone like me, I used to work in a hybrid or remote model for most of the last 20 years, but I was not normal. Um, I guess I'm not normal anyway, but I mean, especially with the way I was working. But if you go back pre-pandemic, over three quarters of companies had people working full-time in the office and just under a quarter would have some sort of a hybrid model. You know, you fast forward to today, and now it's under a third of the people are working in the office and probably closer to 60% are working in a hybrid model with a few others fully remote. 
but we're still in that transition because companies are forecasting that by next year, so 2023, less than 20% of the people will be working full-time in the office and will be up over two-thirds working in a hybrid model and a little bit more working in a fully remote. So we're really in this evolution and it doesn't come easily. I mean, there's a lot of challenges we're going to face to have to make this actually work. I mean, if you think back when we're working in the office, it's real simple. We're, we're working on more hours based. You know, you work from nine to six. To make this model work, we need to change it to be more outcomes based. So I don't care if you work nine to six. I know you want flexibility where and when you work. Basically, we need to make sure that you're delivering outcomes instead of just hours. But that's a large transition and we're not ready for that yet. Mm. And how well are we actually progressing with the return to office? I mean, is that really industry dependent? For example, in my current industry, which is construction, there's no way you could be, you know, fully remote and it has to be some form of hybrid, but it's going to be more on site because of the requirements of the job. We're progressing because we've pushed people back to the office, but this is where we've made a bit of a mistake. Everyone thought that if I stick in a few more beanbag chairs and pool tables, give everybody free drinks on Thursday, they're going to be overjoyed to come back to the office again. And guess what? They're not. But you think about this. I mean, I love the way that everybody's initial model for return to the office is, why don't we go with three days a week? It's like the industry had a Goldilocks moment. One day a week isn't enough, five days too much. So let's just start with three and see what happens. So I think we've tried to bring people back. What we're now coming to is the realization that they're not coming back because they want to, they're coming back because we're forcing them. So how do we actually start getting them to want to come back to the office? How do we transform the employee experience to make it something that they want to be involved with, where they're happy to be back in instead of being forced to be back in? And what do business leaders think about their employees returning to the office and how should they sequence that return phase then? It's really got to be down by the job profile. I mean, sometimes individual teams or individual people. And going into a large organization and saying, everybody has to come in three days a week makes absolutely no sense because you're going to have people who are more synchronous workers who need to work in teams and collaborate more often. And then some people who are more asynchronous, which are more task-based where they can work more remote. But right now we haven't had the time or the effort or the smarts to think about this up front. but we should have been looking at this during the pandemic. How do we successfully transition to it? It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. You got to start breaking it down because it's not just about the employees. There's different country preferences. I mean, the country that where people most want to go back to the office is the Netherlands. And I used to work there and it has the best work-life balance of any country in the world. So people don't mind going back to the office. But in Asia, the people who want to go to the office the least are the people who are working in Northeast Asia. So in China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, those are ones that are have a more of a tough environment to work in, more of a bullying culture, the strict 996 in China, which I know is going away, but people are still expected to work a lot. They don't have that type of a great work-life balance. They don't want to go back in. So it's really a difficult thing. There's dozens of different types of dependencies you would need to look at. We need to start this process because this isn't going to go away. We're going to keep transitioning to it. So we might as well put in a better plan to make sure that our return to work and hybrid models are successful. We've seen companies implementing either flexible hybrid workspaces and policies and then implementing flexibility for knowledge workers. What are they getting right and wrong with these work strategies? They have the right idea, 
they know that everybody wants some type of a flexible work strategy or at least the option to give them a little bit more flexibility. And in knowledge workers, it makes a lot of sense because a lot of people, especially if they're individual contributors, can work remotely. They can do calls on Zoom and they can get their work done when they need to. But what we're seeing right now is in a lot of the major cities around the world, you're seeing occupancy rates of only about 20 to 25%. I think I just saw in London, the average number of days a week that people are going to the office is 1.5 days. And I thought that was shocking until I found out that that's actually above the global average of 1.4 days. But it just depends on the country. Like in Singapore, we went back to the office in April when we first opened up at 74%, we're going into the office most days. Now, that's not because of a policy. That's just because we felt safe. We know we're not going to get COVID. Well, it was less of a chance of getting COVID than somewhere like the US or Europe. But people didn't mind going back to the office again. But then there's other countries like Hong Kong, where most of the people, like almost 90% of them, want to work almost entirely from home. So there's no real clear answer. We've made a bit of a mess of it. We're not getting people back in. Occupancies are still very low. And that's because we haven't delivered these outcomes experiences that employees want. So when the problem is, we've just told them to go back to work, and we haven't shown any empathy to our staff and to our employees to show them that we understand the last couple of years hasn't been easy, and we haven't addressed the human impact of the pandemic. So the key issue is about human outcomes, right? Then what is the human impact of the pandemic, and how does that lead to what we now call the Great Resignation? Well, I think I have the benefit or the, I guess it's not really a benefit, it's a bad thing. I've had to read so many different reports, dozens of different reports on the industry and what's going on. And it scares the hell out of me um, just because I see what's going on. And this isn't small surveys that I'm looking at. I'm looking at very large global surveys, 30 to 120,000 people. And what we know is only 21% of people say they're engaged at work right now. 44% of people say they experience stress a lot during the previous day. 75% say they're struggling to incorporate well-being habits into their daily routine. 60 plus percent think their managers don't support healthy working habits. Parents are feeling more burned out. You know, 58% of us are rethinking work-life balance. So the problem is if we bring people back to the office right now, but that's how they feel, they're going to continue leaving in droves. And what's been happening with the great resignation is it's actually getting worse now. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is we've just pushed people back into the office without a clear rationale for why or what they should be doing. You know, we're looking at in Asia, 50% of the people are extremely likely to switch jobs within the next 12 months. But in that younger generation, that goes up to 55%. What's very worrying is that the people who were hired during the pandemic, they're looking to leave at 62%. Now, that means that while, yes, we can work remotely, we have not figured out how to onboard people remotely, which means these people aren't getting brought into the organization. So this great resignation that we've heard about is going to continue to get worse. And then how about like people in the C-suite level and what are they thinking about in terms of even for themselves? Do, they, do you see the great resignation happens for them as well? This is an interesting one because when you talk to a lot of senior executives at companies and in the commercial real estate industry, what they always say is it's this younger generation that doesn't want to go back to the office. You know, they're too independent. They feel more entitled. That's just not the case. There was a great study that came out recently from Deloitte and they interviewed the C-suite and they found that 70% of the C-suite are seriously considering quitting their jobs for one that provides a better support of their well-being. 
And that's an interesting one because this is the top people at the organization. They've just gone through a very tough couple of years. They've had to get their businesses and their staff and their teams through this. And they're just going, wait a minute, it's not only my teams, it's myself. And I didn't worry about my own personal well-being. So the fact that 70% of them globally said they were looking at quitting, I think is a pretty strong statement from them that we need a new approach about how we're going to take our businesses forward. How does the great resignation actually lead to the great disconnect between employees and employers? I think, again, this is where we haven't shown the right amount of empathy to our employees. And if you look at from what the employers say, like, you know, why they think people are looking, and this came from a McKinsey study at the end of 2021, the top three things they said, well, the employees, they're just looking for a better job or they're in poor health or it's inadequate compensation. But then when you ask the employees, the people who were actually leaving, what their top reasons why they were leaving, number one, they wanted to be valued by the organization. Number two, valued by their manager. And then number three, they wanted a sense of belonging. So these are the human outcomes that we want to drive. We want people to feel valued, trusted, and supported, and that they belong. But we're not delivering that, so that's why people leave. But then as management, we need to acknowledge that instead of just saying, oh, they just left for more money, my company and my culture is perfect. Mm. The one thing I have, okay, and I think this happens for a lot of executives on the senior level trying to think about how to measure performance. How does one think about measuring outcomes in the remote work environment? Because I think there's a paradigm shift and we are not made to actually manage people just over a Zoom screen, right? And a lot of the jobs are, are not done in a way that's outcome-based. And to be fair, so there's, there's also a need to recalibrate how jobs work as well. This is an interesting one because I was talking to a bunch of people at an event about it last week. And the idea is, I mean, right now, everything is basically hours-based. During the pandemic, there was an explosion of companies using employee monitoring software. So they stick software on your laptop to make sure that you're working between nine and six. Now, I despise this. I literally, I've, I've gone on a campaign after some of these companies. I think it is the worst thing you could possibly do. It breaks down the trust, but it also shows that you don't understand your employees. To think that I only work between nine and six is ridiculous and they don't work on weekends. And I've spoken at 300 events over the last decade. Every one of those decks that I've had to prepare, I'm willing to bet it was done in the evening at home or on the weekend on the balcony while I'm having a glass of wine and a cigar. That's when I get in my creative mode. But it's like, we just think that, oh, you're supposed to be here in 96. That's what we must enforce. That model will not work going forward. People want flexibility of where they work and when they work. So we need to redesign our job profiles and the outcomes and how you're going to be measured. So say you worked for me, I'd have to figure out what do you have to deliver during the course of year? How can we design it flexibly that I can make sure you're delivering? It's almost turning everybody into an individual contributor or that type of a model where it's all deliverables based. You know what the requirements of the jobs are, you deliver it. And it should be relatively easy to track that. But right now we're not set up. And one of the big gaps we faced during the pandemic is senior management has set the rules and they expect that the employees will follow those rules. We haven't done enough to support and train the management level of how they should be managing their people as well. So we've just let, said they'll figure it out and that hasn't worked. So we need to give them the tools that they need to better engage and support the people who work for them because right now they just feel unsupported. And I think it's also the user experience, right? There is a right. part about not just the current employees within the company, there's the onboarding, offboarding, you know, all the in-between training as well. I guess 
what is the experience master plan that can be applied to the future of work from your point of view? So I should explain what we mean by experience master plan. And this is something that we've been using at 8 Inc. for quite some time. And the idea is that when we work with our clients, we want to understand a lot more about their business, ensure that we're basically making sure their brand values are communicated all the way down, communicated down to their people. Their people could be their employees, it could be their customers. And what you want to do is start looking across the four different experience realms. And by experience realms, it could be the environments or the offices we work in. It could be the way that you communicate with them, your services or products that you take to market, or the way the behaviors and how you want people to act. And we've started looking at this across the offices. It's quite interesting because we need to start breaking down different personas. So if I'm senior management, if I'm a manager, if I'm a regular staff member, if I'm a visitor in that office, how do I want to interact with them with these various experience realms? And then we make sure that my brand values are getting communicated down. Because when you can do that, you build up irrational loyalty. I'll be totally honest. When I used to talk to Tim, our founder, about this before I ever joined, I struggled with it. But then when I started to listen to him more, what I realized was this is really what they did with the initial Apple Store concept. Think about what it's like inside of an Apple Store. You're going to have an image in your head. You're going to remember how it looks, how the people greet you when they come in, how the genius bar operates. So these are the ways. What they're actually leveraging there are these different experience realms to make sure that Apple's values get communicated down to the people. Now, this is why consumers still queue when a new phone comes out. I Think about it. No one else normally queues when Singtel launches something or another mobile operator launches something. But if Apple does, people are happy to sit in line for hours just to get the glimpse of the first new device when it comes out. So this irrational loyalty works a lot in retail. How do we then transition that so we can build up irrational loyalty within our workforces? Because you want your employees to be a brand advocate for you. That'll help you attract and retain the best talent. And it'll help you actually promote yourself outside of just your company. So it is quite an exciting change. It's a fun way to look at it, but it's really about delivering these differentiated experiences. And we've already figured out, we've done the basics. You know, we've got nice offices or most companies have nice offices. We give the amenities and we're giving them free drinks. And like I said, I love ping pong tables and beanbag chairs. But what are those signature experiences that you could actually be delivering to your employees that would build that irrational loyalty? And there isn't an answer for this. It's not like I give you the top five. It all depends on the type of company you are. Sometimes it's going to be much more around designing a custom job profile for somebody. Where if you come and work for me, I sit down with you that first week and we work out how you should be delivering your projects, how you should be working. So we both understand how you're going to be targeted, making it much more outcomes based. So we're still in the very early days of this, but I think it's interesting because it's the way we need to go, but it is a big transition. One one interesting thing I I took a look at the experience master plan is the proposition that you've broken up into four parts. And I want to dive a little bit deeper on that. There is the environment, there is the communication, and there is the services, and there is the behavior. Can you provide a little bit more color in terms of when, say, whether it's an employee, employee or visitor entering, how do these experience propositions actually play out so that you can create the right user experience? Is it more in terms of a workflow or is it more in terms of where this person goes, how this person works, how this person joins a meeting? Etc. So we actually ran one of these on our own company, largely because I'm completely paranoid right now. We're in a situation that's very fortunate because our business is growing. So our biggest risk we face this year is attracting and retaining talent. If we lose people, it's it's a risk for us. So I wanted to make sure that we were, you know, basically doing what we preach about. 
So when we looked at the environments, it was looking at our office and figuring out how do we want us as our staff members to be engaging with that office, as well as our visitors? What experience do we want them to have when they come into the office? And that was looking at it literally from, do we want to have more breakout areas, more collaboration zones? Do we want more green in there? And we're in the process of moving offices. And I think it's going to be exciting because we're really going to apply a lot more of our strategy in that new office. But on the communication side, then you break that down. How do we want to be communicating to our employees? We don't want it to be very much like the, I'm the boss, you work for me, you must listen to everything I say. We want to be able to share, we want to be open, and we want people to feel that they have psychological safety inside of the office. But then again, when we communicate with our visitors when they come in, how do we want to be talking to our clients? If we're talking to them in a digital format like email, we don't want to be overwhelming them, we want to be concise. So how do we design those communications? You know, on the services and the behavior side as well, it's more around the behaviors you're going to want to drive. How do you want people to behave? Some of the services we offer to our employees are about how do we make sure that we're going to develop them uh, professionally as well as personally? How do we make sure that everybody understands how these things can be delivered going forward? And in a way, it's almost like saying we're a startup. We're not a 34-year-old company. We're a startup, and we're trying to build and put the foundation in place for what we want our company to be in this post-pandemic world because we really are. I mean, everyone's going to have to start over we're not going back to the way things were before. So we might as well spend some time in looking at all these different things to create that culture and environment that you want going forward. Mm. And how do you measure that return on experience for the experience master plan that you're talking about then? So this is something where I think we'll be doing a lot more partnering with a lot of the survey agencies out there right now, whether it's a Qualtrics or some of the consultancies like Mercer, because it's not a quick answer on this. Every company is gonna be different. A lot of people go out and survey and based on employee satisfaction. How happy are my employees once a year? But employees tend not to like those surveys because it's once a year, I never get the feedback, I don't see anything being done dynamically. We should be looking at a lot of other things as well, measuring productivity, employee engagement. You might wanna look at employee retention or in particular star employee retention, You know, looking at your turnover, average length of employment. But the one that I'm really keen on starting to measure a lot more going forward is the employee net promoter score. So we're in the process of actually running a survey internally because we want to understand what do our employees think about this? Now, a net promoter score is normally what you see in more of a retail or a telecoms environment, mobile operators. And But for a mobile operator, you don't need to be the best. You need to be the least hated and you're going to be successful. <laughs> what we actually want to be is we want to have our employees proud to work for us and know that they're going to be talking positively about us when they talk to their friends or colleagues, which could be potential hires for us. And we have a couple of other companies we're talking to about testing this on them in a confidential way so we can see how it actually plays out. But I think this concept of not just saying, are you satisfied, but do you promote me? We can really turn it into a much more human type outcome we want. We want people to become brand advocates for us by the way we treat them as employees. Mm. And then if I were to take this and stretch it out a little bit, what are the key trends today for technologies or social practices that align with the future of work? What's the good stuff you're seeing and what are the bad stuff you're seeing as well? The good thing is people are adopting a lot more technology. The bad thing, of course, is that 70% of digital transformations fail, but we won't go into that point right now. <laughs> so we're adopting it. We're just not adopting it well. A lot of the trends you're seeing are people adopting solutions that have been around for a long time. Uh, meeting room booking systems, occupancy centers, capturing environmental data. That's the good thing. People are adopting this. My thing that really scares me right now is nobody's looking out at the future of where that's going to go. And you've seen this before because we've talked about digital transformation for years. 
if you build things in silos and you don't figure out how to aggregate all that data, you're going to have a lot of data and not a lot of intelligence. So we're not thinking strategically about where we want our companies to be in, let's say, three or five years, where that data is aggregated and can deliver a lot more value back to a lot more people. So this is the risk, and this is what I'm warning everybody about. I'm happy you're adopting technology. If you don't have a plan how to put everything into a platform of platforms, we've got problems. Mm, but that, does it mean that it's just only the data side? And how do you think about, say, getting people to incentivize to use the technology or use the environment to interact? Oh, I think there's a lot of opportunities there because as you know, from someone who's delivered a lot of digital transformation over the years, you can deliver a technology. That does not mean people are going to adopt it. So we need to think about how people are going to interact with that technology, how you're going to explain to them that value of it as well. And part of the problem is that we don't think about the end users up front. We think of them as one group that I have an employee, they're my user, and that's it. They don't think about how this technology can be deployed to a number of different people. And one of the areas I'm looking at a lot right now with this is with digital twins. And it's fun with digital twins because everyone thinks it's just about the building, capturing all the building data, and that'll help you reduce your energy costs. And yes, it will, but that's sort of like table stakes nowadays. This technology has been around for a long time. You need to start incorporating all the other data that we're capturing. It could be your people data from your occupancy sensors or biometrics. It could be your environmental data or the assets. If you've got a new security robot or you know, your cleaning equipment, how do you monitor all that data and put it into a platform of platforms and then turn it into value to different users that we're not thinking about right now? And with digital twins, like I said, everyone talks about it from the base level. I can use it to improve the operations and efficiency of my physical building. But you can start delivering so much more value on, not just to the facilities manager, but you know your chief sustainability officer. They need to have data that's going to allow them to be informed, empowered, and recognized. And a digital twin can do that because it'll help them be able to monitor carbon emissions um, and energy consumption. It'll help them actually create strategies to reduce those emissions and report back internally to the company and to the market as well. And we should be using digital twins to redesign our offices in real time. The days where you would spend three to five years in one physical office space without moving it around, are, it's gone. We need to start doing it more dynamically. We can now track and see you know, where people are congregating in the office. If we've built a collaboration zone and no one's using it, why is that? What can we redesign it for? So a digital twin can transform the job requirement and the capabilities of a workplace manager. But the one I really like and what I think will actually have an interesting impact on the building, on, on the business and the industry, People like the chief financial officer don't care about technology. They care about numbers. But when you get these external factors coming in, like uh, carbon taxes, for instance, they're going to start caring a lot more about it because now they want to make sure that everything's operating efficiently because they got to report back to the financial markets and they don't want to pay these increasing carbon taxes. So the idea is we need to understand that technology delivers value to a lot of different types of user groups, but we need to engage them because as you know, with the digital twin, you don't just plug it in and boom, it all works. You have to engage them up front because you need to understand what your facilities manager, your chief sustainability officer, or workplace manager, or CFO, what they actually need. And we can start transforming the way that we leverage technology to deliver value back to them. That again, makes them happier to work for you and their job better. That was a very long answer for a short question. Apologies for that. No, I think it's a very good point that you're making on digital twin and the different roles and the different user experience. I think maybe in order to get to the outcome that you want to, do you need to actually get the whole organization to have the discovery process first 
to determine the workflows rather than doing it piecemeal by piecemeal and then ends up becoming a Frankenstein because you're just running, you know, like as what you put out earlier, all the data is siloed. And if you have a digital twin with just sensor data, you, you probably wouldn't have a lot to say anyway. Yeah. yeah, but what I would say is ideally, yes, you would start having these focus groups up front when you're conceptualizing your digital twin. You know as well as I that that's just not going to happen. Organizations will fight that. They don't understand the value of it, even if it makes sense. This Frankenstein model, unfortunately, I think is what we're going to create because people look at this in its segments. The first thing they're going to want to do is get that quick ROI by aggregating all the data from their building management systems into a common platform. We need to look at this longer term and we should be talking to people and educating them. But the problem is technologists go out to the business and explain the technical functionality of a digital twin instead of explaining what it actually is. Digital twins are not rocket science, but we make them into it and nobody can explain what the value is of it. So until we transform the way that we talk about technology, you know, the example I'll give is think about 3G, 4G, 5G. You've been through this evolution as well. What do you notice every single time? We talk about how fast it is. We don't actually talk about the human outcomes it's going to deliver. I guess we tried a bit with 5G because we said that you can download a movie in seconds which means the entire industry doesn't understand that we don't download movies anymore. We all stream Netflix and that works fine on 4G. Why did we just not get this up front? And I had a debate online about this recently because one of the major network equipment manufacturers said, we don't talk like that. I'm like, yes, you do. So I started Googling 5G, download a movie in seconds, and I typed in every mobile operator I could think of (laughs) and network equipment manufacturer, and they all have used it. It's the one thing the industry has in common. We've all used the same bad messaging. This is why we need to transform the way we take technology to market so that people actually understand it. I mean, think about digital twins. Go and ask anybody in an organization and in commercial real estate, what does it mean? And you're going to get this blank stare back like, what do you mean? What does it mean? And if they understand it, it's just about the building data. They don't understand what it could be. So we need people who can explain it in simple terms. In technological terms, it doesn't. no one cares. Explain to them what it means to them. If I go to the CFO and I can say, listen, I've got this cool tech. Don't worry about what it is, but it's going to save you money because I can drive operational and asset efficiency. I can minimize or eliminate your carbon tax payments, and I can give you the data that you need to report progress back to financial markets about how we're doing with our ESG commitments. Suddenly he cares. If I go in there and say, I'm going to aggregate data that sits on disparate systems into a platform of platforms, then I'm going to use artificial intelligence to identify ways we can leverage that and then run it through a visualization program to put it into 3D modeling. He, you've lost them already. They just don't care. Tell them what it's going to deliver to them, not how it works. I agree with you. And just a small anecdote, right? It's like recently I implemented a digital workflow solution for the company and then my team wrote out the deck to explain how to use it. And then my first question to them, why haven't you asked them, why are we implementing the solution? What is in it for you to use that solution? And yeah. they liked up and said, oh yeah, right. It's like, why would anybody wants to change a solution? Isn't what you like to do, always like to do? Yeah. It must be you can get faster service, better service. Yeah. Etc. We don't. Right? We haven't. And I'm, I'm sorry, but it's frustrating. I know I've been doing this stuff since the dot-com era. We still push tech for tech's sake. And technology exists to deliver human outcomes. It doesn't exist to deliver technology. It's to help us as people. And we don't get this. And we're really bad at explaining it. And I'm amazed that we haven't been able to improve in the last 25 years. You know, I wish we could, but we just haven't yet. I wish we are not going to have this conversation again in the same line of thinking in a decade's time. Last question for you. What does great look like 
for any company that successfully implement the future of work you talk about? So this is interesting. I, I, I'm, everyone always wants a silver bullet. Like there's got to be a solution out there that I'm just not aware of. And it's not there. And what it is, it's about being, I would say, probably more radically transparent than we are today. Number one, acknowledge that this is a journey. Don't tell your employees, you're coming back to work. This is what we're doing. So tell them that you don't know the answers either. You know, you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to ask the right questions. Talk to them about what we're going to do, what we're going to try. We want your feedback. Then number two, start engaging with your employees. Show them empathy that you understand that the pandemic has been difficult on all of us. We don't have the answers on how you're going to work yet, but we're going to work on this together. And you make it as a shared model instead of just telling them what to do. And finally on this, it's it's really about driving a more human-centric approach, which is a combination of what I've just mentioned the previous two, but focusing on those experiences. What can you do in your office that will actually make people want to come back in? If you give them free drinks, they like that for a couple of weeks until they realize it's just cheap wine that's going to give you a headache anyway. Why don't you end up really trying to design an experience that makes them proud and want to, and want to come back in and delivers value to them and human outcomes? That's where we need to get to. There's not many people that I can sit there and say they've got it down right. Well, there's a high bar. But Charles, pretty good insights. And I think we're going to talk a lot more about this, right? In case 6G come, come upon very soon. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll be looking at 6G. We'll be talking about this with digital twins because trust me, I guarantee you, in next year, we'll still be talking about why nobody understands what a digital twin is. Somebody actually asked me, what's the difference between 4G and 5G? My text and image downloads are the same. So I, all I did was, why don't you take your phone that has a 4G because you have two phones and take the 5G phone and try downloading your Netflix movie and see how fast the download is and then you can tell me whether... It delivers that difference. value back to me. <laughs> See, I knew 5G was in trouble, and I know this is a little bit of a segue, but one of the mobile operators put out a marketing marketing campaign that said, when should you use 4G versus 5G versus Wi-Fi 6? And all I kept thinking is, I don't do that. My phone does that for me, so why do I care? <laughs> and I'm just thinking, it's like, this is we don't know how to get people to adopt it. So maybe if you explain that, suddenly you're going to get that one niche of people to go, I've been waiting for someone to explain to me why I should use Wi-Fi 6 versus 5G. It's like, oh my God. Okay. I'm actually way past thinking about the Wi-Fi 6 piece. But in closing, I have two more questions for you. First one, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? There was a really interesting podcast that I listened to called the Feel Better Podcast. And they had this guy on named James Nestor. And he's the author of a book called Breath. And it looks about the data and the science behind breathing and how are the way that we breathe has changed over the last hundred years based on how we eat, the foods that we're eating or whatever else. Mm. And it was, it gave me some really interesting things that I'm trying to incorporate more into my everyday life because as we breathe better, we become healthier, have more energy and everything else. So I've tested quite a few of their little methodologies out. I just thought it was an interesting thing that you can do when you're sitting in a taxi or whatever else. And it helps you, whether it's with regards to stress or pressure, or just to feel more healthy, to give you more energy and get more oxygen in your system. So very interesting things on breathing. There's another guy, Wim Hof. He's famous for being the guy who runs up Everest with basically just his shorts and no t-shirt. He has some really interesting, good breathing exercises for free on YouTube. So I'd just say that one as well. Breathing's important. I've tried mm. not breathing. It doesn't work well. I black out. <laughs> and how do my audience find you? Uh, easiest way is going to be to find me on LinkedIn, which is Charles Reed Anderson. I believe I'm the only one out there. Although I do know a Charles Reed and a Reed Anderson, but they're not combined. So you can find me there or you can find me on Twitter at CRA Singapore. 
Mm. And you can definitely find me on any podcast platform. Tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And of course, give us a five-star rating on iTunes because that will allow us to get better discovery. Charles, many thanks for coming on the show and definitely we'll continue talking about, you know, 4G, 5G, 6G, maybe the future of work and future of metaverse at some point. We're, well. we're never going to run out of topics to talk about. Well, there's always <laughs> something we'll find interesting and, you know, and I can still apply my same methodologies against it and rant more. Hey, great to see you and we'll talk soon. Thank you very much for having me.